0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Now, in the off-season, you have a really good opportunity to get some good work done. Now, before I explain what that means, let me give the caveat I always like to give when I talk about the quote-unquote off-season. I understand that for many of us, there is no off-season, that we fish just as hard in January as we do in June, and that's fantastic. There's great opportunities there, but at the bare minimum, it's going to get dark early. I mean, you can't fish at 7 p.m. in January. And you might say, well, I do. Okay, most normal people um, or most people that have families and have jobs aren't fishing uh, in the wintertime uh, hours and hours after dark. So there's more time. There's more opportunities. And even if you are a hardcore extreme fly fisher, there's still going to be time that you can devote to things off the water in the months of December and January and February. I mean, once March comes or April comes, depending on where you live and seasons and fishing and things like that, then go crazy, go for it, but take the opportunities that you have before you when it comes to the off season. So what are the things that you can do? So some of these things are things I've discussed before, but, uh, I want to talk about them because they've been on my mind as I have been anticipating, uh, just getting a couple things taken care of before the season kicks off here in New England in the next couple of months. And so We'll go through them, and I'll give a couple of uh, ideas that I have, and certainly check out the website castingacross.com for more articles about these things. The first one that came to mind as I was thinking about casting, as I often do, uh, is leader formulas. Uh, if you are fishing with knotless, tapered leaders, you take it out of the package, you do your best to not choke yourself with it or tie a nice, tight knot in it when you've just taken it out of the package— And you do a loop-to-loop connection from the end of your fly line to your knotless tapered leader. And then you tie a fly on. That's great. It works just fine. But imagine you are fishing a size 18 parachute Adams on a glassy pool. And then you take a few steps up and you notice there's a big undercut bank right where the uh, previous run empties into that pool. You were just fishing with a dry fly. You can And you should. And in a pinch, there's nothing wrong with tying on a size 8 streamer. However, there is a lot of value in having two very different leader setups for those situations, especially if the fish are spooky and you don't want to have a splashy presentation, especially if you have to make a long cast, especially if there's some complicated currents in between where you're standing where you're casting, where your line's going to be, where your leader's going to land, and where your fly needs to be to make the right presentation to the fish. All of those factors come together, and there's a limiting um, ceiling to what you can do simply by how you cast. But having a good leader is a way to get a little bit more out of a good cast and a good Mend. So it's a podcast. I'm not going to give you numbers. I'm not going to give you formulas, but there are countless resources online, and I have a couple articles with some very simple leader formulas that I use, building off of not less tapered leaders that come out of a package. But real quick, just talk about a few things that I think are worth worth messing around with. First of all, if you fish streamers, if you fish streamers for uh, warm water species, or if you fish streamers for trout. The simplest things that I like to do: warm water, salt water, and trout are long lengths of straight mono or fluorocarbon built off of a thick butt section. And so these are very simple to tie. They're very economical. You go to your big box store and you buy the stuff that people are using to fish, you know, on unconventional gear, or you spend a couple extra bucks and get some some. Uh, material that might be a little bit more supple that you can use from the the fly shop and you do a forearm length, you know, a cubit, if you will, 18 inches or so of that butt section, nice, good, solid knots. You do this at home. You do this on your, your bench. You do this where you have good light. You tie those knots. You make sure they line up perfectly. You, you, you take time to move all those wraps into perfect position. You cinch it tight using like a pair of forceps or something like that. You don't, you don't squeeze it with the forceps. You wrap it around the end of the the forceps and then you, you have something to torque it on. And then you get a little bit of, um, of knot sealant. Loon makes a, a good UV knot epoxy. Then you hit both the terminal end that's going to go to your leader, the rest of your leader, and you have the end that's going to go onto your fly line. And you make six or eight of those, throw them in a little leader wallet, and now you have butt sections for fishing streamers. And then what you do is you pull out a length of, of mono or fluoro that is anywhere between um, you know six and eight feet long and you tie a nice loop to loop knot on the back end of that. I believe that under all but the most extreme conditions when you're dealing with heavy mono or fluoro and you know your 12 pound test, 14 pound test, something like that as your tippet section, as long as you're tying really good solid knots and hitting them with a, a UV epoxy, at home, where you can pay attention to it, a loop-to-loop connection is going to work great. I catch big striper, and I catch big warm water fish with loop-to-loop connections from uh, leader, uh, like tippet section to leader section, leader section to uh, terminal end of the the uh, fly line. Um, is it what I'm going to use for every situation? No, but it definitely works. Now... A, this is a very simple formula. I mean, you know, like a 35 pound test, uh, butt section, and then a 12 pound test straight section, but you will find that this is going to turn over poppers and big streamers very, very well. Can you get cuter than this? Of course you can get cuter than this, but you, this is a great starting point for you to start to realize how does do lengths and diameters of monofilament and fluorocarbon impact my presentation based on my casting stroke? How is this going to turn over that big heavy wind resistant popper or streamer? And you're able to now fiddle with it a little bit. Maybe you go from having that butt section to a little bit of a thinner piece of of rigid uh, monofilament at the end of it before you tie on your tippet. Or maybe your tippet is two pieces of stepped down 20 to 16 uh, monofilament. But play with that and tie some things up now. Um, I think the, one of the reasons why knotless tapered leaders are so uh, convenient is because you don't have to think about it. You just throw it on the end of your, your uh, line when you're ready to fish, and you don't have to worry about knots except for tying on fly until the leader gets really jacked up, and then you actually have to only tie on a one blood knot or one double surgeons to add length to it. So think about, uh, uh, about leaders and think about tippets uh, in the off-season. Pay attention to it, uh, take a look at it, work on your knots. If you only know how to tie a double surgeon's, then spend some time under that lamp with some thicker pieces of material tying blood knots. Um, you'll you'll just open up all sorts of worlds, but it's a great thing to do in the off-season when you have a little bit of time. Second thing that I like to do in the off-season is a big fly box cleanup. And this is takes kind of two different forms. Uh, The first one is you go through your flies, you find the ones that are ugly, that aren't going to catch fish. And you might say, yeah, but fish like ugly flies because they look like flies that have seen something, you know? Well, that might be true, but there gets to be a point where the thread has all come off and there's no more wings and the hackles a little bit chewed up and the tail is very, very sparse where it would catch fish if you, you know, had been using it all day and you keep catching fish on it. But that is the sign to you that you need to tie up or purchase six more of whatever that pattern was. Also look for rust, you know, get under good light. If you need magnification or, you know, then look at all of the hook eyes. Is there rust on the hook eyes? Is there rust on the hook bends? Are there barbs that need to be pinched down? Are there hook points that need to be sharpened? And just go through real quickly, not necessarily picking up every fly with a fine pair of tweezers and holding it up under a giant magnifying glass, but go through really quickly and say, oh, Why is this pattern here? Why do I have one atoms in a row of blueing olives? That was a mistake I did when I was in the stream. Let me put it back where it goes so that I know where everything is. You can check to see what you need to tie more of what you need to replace by buying. All of those things you can do in this moment. But something else that I've found too is that I've got flies just in random places everywhere. They're stuck on little gadgets that I have. They're attached to magnetic things. They are in, you know, just on my desk. And I put these all back in the right place. And again, I, it's you know, if, you, if you're really thrifty, then take a, um, take, take a razor blade and take all the material off, and now you have a hook that you can use. But you can pitch it, and it's not going to be the end of the world. But something that I've been adding to this fly box cleaning routine in the last few years, and I did this actually in the fall as the season was kind of slowing down, was I did this fly box cleaning, but I would cull some of the best flies into one big box, with the aim of carrying less flies on the river. For years and years and years, I carried every trout fly that I had. I mean, if it was a coffin fly, if it was a green drake, I don't care what it was. I would put it in my pack because I never knew when the opportunity might arise where that fly was going to be exactly what I needed. But years and years later, and although I still kind of have that tendency... Um, what I really found is that the flies I need, I'm going to turn to in a random situation aren't going to be the, ran, the, the, random weird fly that I picked up at a fly shop when I was on some trip. And the guy said, these work really well here. But I think really at the end of the day, what he was trying to do was get rid of a bunch of flies he bought that don't work there. What really I think I do is I don't turn to those flies. I turn to my confidence flies. I turn to the flies that I am going to know I want to fish under diverse circumstances. So I've got the flies that I know are going to be within the normal range of food sources and forage for the fish in that stream, and then I have my confidence flies. And so I will cull patterns out of my bigger boxes into one master box that I will have front and center uh, if I'm carrying lots of fly boxes, or it will be the one box that goes into my pack if I'm going just for a few hours or if I want to travel light. So you can have those two aspects of fly box organization that you can incorporate into your off-season program, as it were, where you can, um, you, you can clean stuff up, you can reorganize stuff, but then you can also consolidate, which uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed if you, if you do choose to consolidate the amount of flies that you carry. There is a lot of value in that. The third thing that I would suggest, so we have uh, learn, learn leaders. Secondly, organized fly boxes. The third thing that I would really suggest, and I I do this uh, because I get a little stir crazy sometimes, but there's a lot of value in this, is go walk streams. Go walk streams you know well, and go walk streams that you don't know well. This time of year is a great time to do it. When the foliage is down, when their water might be a little low if things are all frozen up, uh, you can see so much that you wouldn't normally ordinarily see. Uh, I notice this in my backyard, you know, when I'm looking out my back windows and I notice things about my neighbor's houses, I notice things about my neighbor's yards, I notice things about my neighbor's trees, like the squirrel nests and the birdhouses and things like that. Think, well, how long has that been there? Well, it's always there. It's just that there's usually tree leaves up in the trees and even Early spring buds and late fall, you know, those last few leaves that are hanging on, obscure your view significantly. And the same is true when you're on the water. If you're walking on a trail next to the water to get to the spots that you're comfortable with, you're not seeing the kind of stuff in the summertime that you can see in the wintertime when you're looking at the stream from the trail. The same would be true if you wanted to throw on waders and boots and get out in the water. You'd be able to see so much more when the water is low and when the leaves are down. Uh, I think one of the things that was most significant to me uh, when I was fishing Pennsylvania, when I was and I'd, I'd fish in the wintertime, but I would notice how many little muskrat channels and muskrat rat holes there were on the banks that you couldn't see in the summertime because there were so many weeds. And especially in some of these spring creeks, the trout didn't need feet and feet of channel to navigate. As long as they could fit their body in it, they had become very adept at moving through these small spaces to get refuge and especially for the really big fish uh, where they would hang out uh, during the daytime because they were nocturnal feeders or there were smaller fish that would find these little off channels that got a lot of water that would run through them. And But they were completely obscured because in the summertime they were covered in aquatic plants from one side and uh, the, uh, the, the weeds that would hang over the banks on the other side. So uh, to be able to walk the stream bank and see where these muskrat holes and these muskrat tunnels were was huge. Uh, you can see undercut banks in, in new ways uh, on your, your home stream. Uh, you can see also, this is a big one, Where is the? are there spring seeps? I've talked about this when we talk about scouting water before, but in the wintertime, if you see a bunch of green foliage on the water and um, uh, from, from the bank, you can definitely see those things in a new way in the wintertime. Plus, it's just good to get out, and it's always good. It might not be the most fun thing in the world, but it is always good to look at your stream, observe the water that you're going to be fishing without a fly rod in hand. Um, I feel like holding a rod and thinking about actively fishing, it takes up a chunk of our processing power that we would otherwise need to observe things uh, in, in, a, in a much more holistic way if we didn't have a rod in our hand and we weren't thinking about fishing. Uh, we often always have preconceived notions about where the fishing is going to be good and how we're going to be doing it. And so we might pass up very good water that if we were being objective, We would normally stop at and say, you know, this is worth fishing. But if we know that the pool above is where we caught a big fish, then we're going to probably bypass that first pool. Without a fly rod, you're going to be able to observe those things in a much more objective and probably more focused manner. Lastly, and this is uh, a perennial New Year's resolution, this is a challenge, this is whatever, Uh, make plans to fish new water. Make plans to fish new water. Now's the time to pick up the guidebook for your state or one of the adjacent states. Now's the time to dig through the Department of Fish and Game or Fish and Wildlife guide that you get when you buy your license. Now's the time to hop online, look at the fly shops, find a piece of water that you haven't fished before. It might be a river that you've driven over and driven past countless times. It might be a river that you have hiked next to. Um, It might be a pond that you have paddled or swam, but you've never fished there. Now is the time to make that a goal. Um, there can be a real uh, energy and a real drive when you plan on fishing someplace. I mean, think about think about how excited you get when you go on vacation. If you have gone on a guided trip or gone on a vacation or something like that, there's a lot of anticipation and a lot of planning. And a lot of these rivers that, you know, you take vacations on, that you get guided trips on are really, really, really good. Um, but some of that is the hype the hype that is surrounding that water body and the hype that you build up. Um, if, If you catch a bunch of 16 and 18 inch trout on a guided trip, that's awesome. But wouldn't it also be awesome to catch a bunch of 12 and 14 inch fish on a trip that you put to a local water together on your own that you had been excited about. And that excitement is going to pay off in that moment on the water where your hard work is what causes that experience to materialize. Worst case scenario, what happens? You read about a water body, you find out about it, and it's less than exciting, you know, and and you learn and you move on to the next thing and you've been outside and you've been fishing and there's all sorts of good things that come with that, but make plans to do it. I spent some time doing that today. I have an exciting um, product that I want to write about and talk about here in the coming weeks, but I spent some time looking at some really good quality water that's only about an hour and a half from me, two or three rivers that I've known about um, but I hadn't fished because I was a little bit, uh, skeptical about the access, spent some time today in this app, learning about the access. And now I'm really excited about going because now I know where to go. I've known about the quality of the fishery. Now I know how to access it. And so utilize, uh, all the resources that are out there. Like I said, I'll talk about a cool one here in the next couple of weeks about how you can figure out access, but start to put those plans together. And you can, of course, add corollary things, fish with this particular rod, fish this particular style of fly fishing, use these flies, use a fly I tied. Hey, maybe it's even use a leader that I tied on my own in the off season, or it's using only the one fly box that I have called all of the flies that I often use out of my dozen fly boxes into one, or it might be because I know where to fish now because I've spent time walking these rivers in the off season. And so I have a great plan of attack and presentation when I actually get on the water. But those four things together, they are certainly not exhaustive, but they're things that you can devote a little bit more time to in the off season. I think if you look back on the Casting Across fly fishing archives, as well as the Casting Across website, you can find a lot more articles like this. They have to do with going to classes, uh, doing some reading, practice your casting, cleaning your gear, going through your old junk, you know, getting hooked up with a conservation organization. There's all sorts of stuff that you can do in the off-season to prepare yourself for a great spring, summer, and fall of fishing, even if that means you're not on the water as much as you'd like to be. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called Lizards and Largemouth lizards and largemouth uh, bass eat everything largemouth bass eat absolutely everything and one way to know this is to go to the rubber worm aisle and there's a lot more than worms there I mean there's any sort of animal that you can make out of rubber and you can buy it in fire tiger or in pumpkin seed and shove a one not hook and a uh, a bullet weight through it and catch a big largemouth bass So I saw this firsthand when I was living in South Carolina and the little anoles uh, would fall in the water and the bass would just go absolutely crazy for them. And this got me thinking and this got me observing and this got me tying. Um, But it also showed me, because I'm not a great tire now, certainly wasn't a great tire then, that uh, there is a limitation on what you can do with artificial materials that can uh, elicit the strike of a fish. Um, I had a lot of success but not as much success as I wanted. So I write about that in Lizards and Large Mouth. So it's not really a bass article. It certainly isn't a lizard article. It's kind of a fly tying and observation article. Wednesday's article was called Solitude Together. And this is a revamp of an article from years and years and years ago. Um, and what I did with it is I took it from like a here's four things to Kind of article, and I made it a little bit more streamlined and I kind of brought it into more of a flow of of like a a narrative. So this article touches on something that as anglers uh, we can all appreciate where we like to have fishing friends. I think most of us do, Uh, but we also like to fish by ourselves. But those things aren't mutually exclusive, and so that oxymoron of a title, uh, Solitude Together, hints at this idea of this thing that most so many of us try to capture when we're out on the water, when we are um, also out with our friends. So, good article. The first time around, it got a good pop and good response, so hopefully this one does as well. Um, definitely taps into something that I think a lot of us appreciate. This week on the podcast, the recommendation is... Or an Orvis store. An Orvis store. How many Orvis stores are there? There's a lot. I didn't take the time to hop online, but I know there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Um, why am I telling you about an Orvis store? Um, well, in the off-season, they often offer fly tying classes and I know they have fly tying 101 classes for free. So this is being recorded in the beginning of February. I know they go through the middle of March, but now's the time if you have not tied flies and there are uh, advanced fly anglers that have never picked up a vice and a bobbin because they're perfectly content buying flies, or maybe they tried tying flies on their own at one point in time in the past and they failed miserably. Now's the time to go to an Orvis store and give it a shot. You could do it at your other local fly shop. You could do it at a conservation organization, but you have a free class that Orvis puts on the Orvis stores that I'm familiar with. The guys that run these and the women that run these do a really good job. And then you can turn around and buy this stuff right there. Um, some of Orvis's beginning fly tying equipment is, is solid, and where they source their materials from for their fly tying stuff, it's some of the, the best stuff that's out there. So, there's certainly other options, but uh, because so many of us have an Orvis store near us, check out your local Orvis store for their fly tying 101 classes. And uh, now's a great time to get into that. I'll put a link to Orvis and their website, if you've never heard of it, on this show's page uh, on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.